Okay, so first Sunday of, of every month, what I like to do is I like to share my own heart, soul, mind, strength goals for the month. Jesus said the most important thing you can do is love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbors, yourself. That, to me, is the simplest way of understanding discipleship. Discipleship is a biblical word that means someone who is following, trying to learn to live from someone else. So Jesus had disciples who were learning from him how to live. I don't like that being a vague thing, though. I think it's easy for a lot of Christians to kind of be like, yeah, I'm a disciple. I kind of do read the Bible and church stuff. But it can kind of stay very vague. And so for me, I take Jesus' command and I break it into four areas. Relationships, prayer, worship, life, deepening my understanding of God's word and Christian worldview and, and serving and giving in sacrificial ways. And what I do every month is I just kind of take time to pray and reflect and say, God, where might you be inviting me to stretch in terms of my expression of love for you? There's usually one or two areas I find that every Christian says, oh, this kind of comes easy to me. I like to serve. I like to pray. It's easy for me to open up scriptures. It's easy for me to connect and encourage other Christian believers. But I take as my discipleship model the call of Jesus, which says, love God, heart, soul, mind, um, and strength, not or, like whatever one is easiest or comes naturally to you. So I try and challenge myself. And so this month, what I'm doing is in the area of kind of godly relationships and nurturing godly relationships. I'm coming up with my family devotional plan for the year. I tend not to think about this until September hits and school's happening and then it kind of gets sidetracked and uh, lots of things are happening and it can kind of get sidelined until like October. So I'm trying to kind of be a month ahead on that, just praying and thinking through what are the things that I want to be leading our family through in terms of devotional focus. Uh, I've scheduled an all-day prayer fasting retreat just for myself and really the, the goal there is to just um, get alone with God, uh, voluntary under stimulation, just try and sit before God with his word and just be saying, God, what are things you need to correct in my life? What are things where you're leading me into new dimensions of my relationship with you? Or, you know, is there something that you want to get my attention on? Uh, I think this is a good practice for all of us to do once a year, just to take an entire uh, good chunk of time and uh, just sit before God with a journal and scripture and just pray and say, God, I'm listening, speak to me, uh, correct me, bring sin before me that is unknown or unconfessed or, you know, lead me in the way that you want me to go. And I especially think that's important for pastors who are responsible for the spiritual trajectory of churches. So I want to take a whole day and kind of break that up between myself personally, but also my role as a pastor, as a shepherd over this community seeking God's guidance. Didn't get as much reading done as last month, month as I thought I would between vacation and doing camps, so I'm going to finish Andy Crouch's Weak and Strong, and I didn't get to dig into Think Christian's article series on seeing God in science. And then I'm going to be serving in and through Cave Quest, not just doing some teaching stuff, but also some behind-the-scenes stuff, because I think that's really, really important to, for me, not just to plug into areas like speaking where it's easy for me to do, uh, but also to plug into areas that, uh, that are a little bit more behind-the-scenes. So that's what I'm going to be doing, and I invite you to think about that for yourself. I had someone last month email a little group of people saying, these are my heart, soul, mind, and strength goals for the month, for accountability and encouragement. I was, I was super encouraged by that, because if we keep our discipleship to Jesus as, yeah, we'll just kind of do stuff and see what happens, I don't think that's really discipleship. I think discipleship is intentional. Paul talks about in, in 1 Timothy, you know, train yourself to be godly. This is something that you have to apply, you have to move into, not as a way to earn God's grace, but in response to God's grace, you've got to take this thing seriously. So that's what I try and do, and I hope that's an encouragement to you. This month, we're taking a break from Mark. We've been moving through the gospel of Mark at a snail's pace, but it's still been good. 
And we're taking a break this month to do something that I've done before called Choose Your Own Adventure. And I sent out a survey. It's still live in the online. You can get it through a summit newsletter that goes out on Friday. Just fielding questions that you guys have about Jesus, God, the Bible, faith, scenarios, circumstances, how to work through them as a Christian, as a disciple, or, or maybe you're even a skeptic and you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a believer and you're like, I've always been tripped up by this about Christianity or I've always pushed back on the idea of becoming a Christian because of this. Uh, this is a chance for us to kind of put those questions front and center and for me to maybe create some momentum so that you can continue to wrestle with them in your own life. So we're going to be starting that today. Next week, just as a bit of a heads up, because some of you guys might want to know this, we're going to be dealing with some kind of quick miscellaneous questions, but uh, most of our time is going to be spent next week on how to, basically, how do we know the difference between the voice of God and our own imaginations? Does God still, still speak today audibly, powerfully, um, kind of in a way that is very clear to us that, that we would be so bold as to say, God just spoke to me, or God told me this, or God told me that, or is that really just more exaggerated language to mean we have a sense or a prompting or indigestion and we just mistake those for different things. So how does God speak? How do we know when God is speaking versus our own ego, self, imagination? Then the week after, there's going to be a collection of issues related to gay and lesbian, uh, I don't like to say issue, but but gay and lesbian uh, questions, LGBT questions. How do we broach that topic and engage with people, uh, family, friends from that community. Um, what are the, one great question was, some Christians are for gay marriage. Many Christians seem to not be. What are the scriptures that support both sides? Um, so we're going to be looking at that. And really, what should be our fundamental posture towards people who are, um, who experience same-sex attraction or transgender or uh, trans identity? So that will be in two weeks' time. Kind of pushing that one back because I need a little bit more time to do some homework on that. Uh, but today we're going to deal with three questions. And the uh, first one isn't kind of related to the next two. next two are kind of connected. But the uh, first one's really, really good. So the first question is miraculous healings. And this person says, I've heard some really, really wild stories about spontaneous healings. But I've never witnessed anything firsthand myself. And so their question is, are these stories actually true? Now, I don't know what this person means by wild stories, but if you've been in the Christian subculture long enough and you've kind of seen, moved into and out of different Christian streams and traditions or gone to different conferences, uh, I've definitely been exposed to uh, at least hearing about wild things happening in certain contexts, whether it's on the mission field or in conferences or at a certain time of prayer, these things happened. And this person's kind of saying, I hear these things are happening, but it kind of, basically it seems unreasonable to me. It seems like a leap to admit or to kind of take this at face value. Do do these things actually happen? Well, throughout the Bible, God displays his power Sometimes in like just a phenomenally obvious and, and uh, awe-inspiring ways, right? God parts the Red Sea for the Israelites. That's an, that's an example of an awesome miracle. And miracles also scale from that kind of tremendous spectacle to also what we might consider, if we were honest, to kind of be like, oh, small-scale miracles. Still miracles, 
but they're on a smaller scale. And I, and I thought this week of when Jesus comes to the house, house of Peter's mother-in-law, who has a high fever, he just touches her and, and takes the fever away. That's a miracle. He healed her. She had a high fever. That was dangerous in those days. But it's not on the same level of spectacle as raising someone from the dead or parting the Red Seas. But nowhere in the Bible does it infer that miracles are something that we should expect to stop or to cease from happening. Because God is powerful. God is at work in the world. His spirit has been poured out in and through Pentecost. And now his kingdom is being established in and through the church. He is at work, and God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. And so really what that means is we should expect once in a while God to do things which are spontaneous, out of left field, not easily categorized, but certainly something that speaks to his power and his goodness and his glory. So I've also heard of some very wild stories of spontaneous healings, sometimes physical, sometimes emotional, sometimes spiritual. People released from things they feel like have, have, have held them down, held them back, have been oppressive to them over their life. Um, I've never witnessed any of that um, firsthand, personally, but I have no reason to doubt that these things happen. I don't think there's any biblical reason to doubt that those things happen. Are those stories sometimes fabricated? Maybe. I'm not sure why someone would fabricate those stories and, and how, what they're seeking to gain from that. But um, I think because someone might lie about something like that, I don't think that's, again, any reason to uh, contravene the scripture, which would definitely say God is at work, God is powerful. Miracles are just God's supernatural intervention in an unnatural way. They're, they're an unnatural way of intervening in life and doing something. And nowhere in scripture does it say, well, God does miracles here, but then he's not going to over here. And so we're no longer uh, in an age where God is at work or God is powerful. Now, there is a question of to what frequency do miracles occur? And are there people who are supernaturally gifted to do miracles? And what is the degree to which miracles happen today? So do we see... Are we just as likely to see a parting of the Red Sea today as we are to see someone healed of a high fever? And that's where different Christian traditions would uh, disagree and have different interpretations of Scripture. Um, but all Christians who take the Bible seriously would absolutely confirm that miracles still happen, and probably because of the nature of a miracle, a lot of those miracles are going to be spontaneous because they're God intervening in a supernatural and direct and powerful way that speaks very clearly to the fact that this wasn't something else. This was God at work. So there's disagreements about the frequency of miracles and the intensity, as it were, and the degrees of which, but there's really no debate as to whether or not miracles can and do happen today. Question number two. Why did Jesus say that you must be born again? So whenever anyone quotes Jesus, I always encourage them to say, did Jesus actually say that? Because more and more people are like, I think, doesn't the Bible say somewhere? Or didn't Jesus say something like? And I always say, let's double check to make sure that's exactly what Jesus said. Yes, he does say that. In John 3, verses 1 to 7, this is a famous account. A Pharisee named Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night. He's part of the Jewish ruling council. He doesn't want other people to know that he kind of is being convinced that Jesus might actually be the Messiah. He is from God. He's not doing these things out of a demonic power or some kind of anti-God force. But he comes to visit Jesus at night because he doesn't want his other 
ruling synagogue friends. He's very connected socially and politically and, and religiously. So he's coming to Jesus under cover of night and trying to piece together who this Jesus is and what his response should be. It says, there, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. For no one could perform the, miracle, the miracles and the signs that you're doing if God weren't with them. And in re- reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Well, how can a man be born again when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he can't enter his mother's womb a second time. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And that's a good translation. That must there isn't like you should be or you ought to be. You must be. So first of all, what is Jesus talking about? He's clearly not talking about, obviously, a physical rebirth. There's some kind of spiritual other dimensionality that Jesus is saying, you need to be born again. You need to be reborn. He's using the metaphor of birth as a way of saying, you need to kind of start at life completely fresh, completely new. Why does he say it's necessary, right? Jesus could have said, you know what? You don't need to be born again. You just need to kind of turn over a new leaf. You kind of need some tips and tricks, and I'm here to show you a few things, a few little tweaks that you can do psychologically, emotionally, uh, that'll really help you and kind of move you to the next level. You're not so broken and damaged that you need to kind of start over. You're more, you just need some repairs. And so I'm going to give you the tools so that you can self-improve through moralism, just kind of become a better person, don't do bad things, do good things, moralism, um, or through religiosity, through certain rituals. If you do these things four times a day, that's going to kind of take care of things. He doesn't say that. He says you must be born again. And to understand that, I think we have to understand what sin has done to us as human beings. So if we put up this graphic, in Genesis chapter 3, which is pretty famously called the chapter of the fall, this is Adam and Eve in the garden, they're tempted and led away from God, they don't trust God, they listen to the deceitfulness of the serpent who basically says, did God really say this? Listen, God's trying to hold you back from abundant life, I give you access to it, do this, do the thing that God's told you not to do and you'll actually have your eyes opened, you'll be like God. You're going to get access to stuff that God wants to hold you back from. When they do that, four things happen immediately. Number one, they're alienated and estranged by God. They hide in the garden from God. They no longer have a sense of security in their relationship with God. Their relationship with God is now characterized by fear and anxiety. Their relationship with each other are characterized by accusation and condemnation. When God walks in the garden in the cool of the day and confronts him, Adam says, Oh, the woman you gave me. She made me eat it. And she says, oh, the serpent made me eat it. It's now shaming, it's blaming, lack of taking responsibility. There's now tension in human relationships that wasn't there before. Their sense of identity is corrupted. They're now aware, they're now shamed. They now carry shame. They uh, seek to cover themselves. They're trying to hide. They no longer are operating out of a sense of being a, a fully integrated and whole image bearer of God. And they're ability to move out into the world and be image bearers that are fruitful and multiply and culture the world to God's glory, that gets interfered with. God says, yeah, Adam, you're still going to be a farmer. I've given you work to do, but now thorns and thistles are going to come up from the ground. Your work's going to be hard. The earth is cursed now because of you. The work that you do, and by implication, the work that all of us do, whether it's work as a pastor or as a student or as a mechanic, it's not just going to flow naturally the way it's going to 
where it should. There's going to be thorns and thistles. Your vocation, understanding your vocation and what you're meant to do, and then doing that well is going to become hard. So what sin has done is it's disrupted and um, poisoned, and, and a toxin has entered into all of these dimensions. So while we're made in the image of God, we're now kind of meant to reflect as a mirror the glory of God into the world. We're now broken mirrors, and we don't reflect that light improperly, and we reflect it in all kinds of distorted ways. And the Bible says in Genesis, because of Genesis 3, there's now two things that we live under. We live under the uh, penalty of sin and the power of sin. So we live under the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. So we're now under the penalty of sin, which is alienation from God. We cannot have fellowship with God in this life or the next. And we're also under the power of sin. Sin isn't just the bad things that we do. It means missing the mark. But it also is referred to in Scripture as a power that acts on us. This is our experience where we intend to do the right thing and we have all the right reasons to do it, but doing the wrong thing just seems so much more natural to us. And even with tremendous willpower and intentionality and focus, it's still very easy to find ourselves doing the things that we promised ourselves we'd never do, speaking in ways we promised ourselves we'd never speak, pursuing opportunities of selfish sinfulness that we just told ourselves we'd never do that again. Romans 6.6 6 says, We know that our old self, meaning before we were born again, was crucified in him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Um, and uh, later in Ephesians, it talks about how uh, sin was our master. So sin is a power. So we're under the penalty of sin, and we're also under the power of sin. We, don't, we can't live and access the kind of life God has for us. And in Ephesians 2.1 Paul says, the way, the way he summarizes, God through Paul summarizes this whole state, is he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're spiritually dead. You're obviously alive. You can take a pulse. But to God and to the life that God wants you to live, you're dead. You're unable to access it. So the Bible doesn't say you're just spiritually a little sick. You're just running a bit of a fever. So here's some self-help. Here's some moralism. Here's some instructions and if you kind of drive into those, you'll be fine. The Bible is actually more damning in its diagnosis. It actually says we're spiritually dead, which means we need to be spiritually regenerated. We need to be born again. And that can only come from God. And that's the only thing that's going to get us out from under the penalty of sin, out from under the power of sin. And God provided a way. In Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, it says... Well, Ephesians uh, 2.1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but that's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not that we were dead, full stop, period, there you go. It's, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved, and God raises us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you've been saved, through faith. And this isn't from yourselves, it's a gift from God. It's not by work so that you can't boast. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
which begs the question, how do you become born again? If it's necessary, and we need to be regenerated by God, if we're spiritually dead, alienated from God, alienated from uh, others, our own sense of identity, our sense of vocation in the world, how do we get back on track? And that's the, that is the central good news message of Christianity, which is repent and believe the gospel. Repent means turn around from living life as you see fit and trying to figure it out yourself, trying to rely on religious moralism or just being a good person or having a life philosophy and adhering to that, self-salvation, turn away from that, turn to Christ, say, I need you, and trust in what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection. That through the incarnation, the atonement on the cross, and the resurrection, God has dealt with the penalty of sin, and now through his spirit in us, is inviting us and empowering us into a new way of life where slowly, over time, we take off the shackles of the power of sin and replace it with the power of the spirit, the power of new life. Number three, can a Christian lose their salvation? So once you're saved, you turn your life over to Jesus, you become born again. Is it possible to lose your salvation? That's a really, really important question. Well, and the way I want to start it is by looking at a few scriptures that talk about what happens the moment we become saved. And we're going to work kind of backwards from that. So one of the things that the Bible is very clear on is that when we turn our lives over to Jesus, in that instant, Jesus' blood is reckoned to our account. Jesus' blood saves us from the penalty of sin. Ephesians 2.13. I have some scriptures here. I'm not going to... I have them listed. They're in your notes too. I'm going to be moving through these quickly. But they're in their notes in case you want to go back and double check and verify what I'm saying. Ephesians 2 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ washes us from sin. It purifies us from sin. And therefore the penalty of sin is removed removed from us. Romans 5, 10, and 11. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, since you've been reconciled, will you be saved by his life? Not only this, but also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. So in Jesus, um, we are reconciled, we are brought back into a new starting point with God. God. We're born again, we're no longer defined by our sinful state and our sinful identity. Hebrews 7.25 talks about the saving act of Jesus, and it says, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for us. He's interceding in the heavens right now. He's been ascended, he is alive, um, he is interceding, he's praying, he's fighting for us now that we are his. Number two, God the Father protects us through his power. First Peter 1.5 says, uh, he's referring to Christians, and he says, you Christians who by God's power are protected through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So God the Father protects you like a father who now protects the family that is his. God the Father is now protecting us. Jude twenty four twenty five. To him, God the Father, who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory and majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. So the Father protects us. The Holy Spirit begins a renewing work in us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. Um, so then if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. More literal translation says new creation. New creation has come. If you're in Christ, new creation has come. What is old has passed away, the new has come because we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's two verses that speak of the Spirit being deposited and 
sealed within us as a guarantee of, sal- of not just a salvation now, forgiveness of sins, but also for the grand salvation to come when Jesus returns and we're going to be saved into new heavens and new earth. 2 Corinthians 1. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership upon us like a king who waxes the letter. This is my seal. They're now mine. I own them. They're my possession. And he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You look to buy a house, you put a deposit on the house to say, I get first dibs in that house. I'm owning it. The, the rest of the money's coming, but I'm putting a deposit down because I'm guaranteeing that I'm buying that house. And that's what God has done for us. He's given us a deposit guaranteeing our salvation. Ephesians 1. And you also were included with Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the day of redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Probably the, one of the biggest scriptures, it's my go-to scripture for this idea called eternal security. Once saved, always saved. You can never lose your salvation. Is Jesus speaking in John 10, speaking to those who turn their lives over to him. He says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, he's greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and my Father are one. um, John 1 talks about at the moment of conversion, when we turn our lives over to Jesus, we actually become adopted sons of God. John 1, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I don't mind the translation children. I know they're going for the Spirit. The direct translation is sons which we might view as, well, that's kind of sexist. Like, the intent, obviously, of the passage is we're now all sons and daughters of God. And I would say that's actually not the intent of the passage. The intent of the passage is to say you're all, you're all now sons because only within a biblical paradigm and worldview, only sons got the inheritance of a family. So it's actually super good news for women because in women in the biblical times couldn't receive an inheritance. It only went to the firstborn and maybe to the second if there was leftover But now in Christ, anyone in Christ, including women, are treated as sons. They're treated as a place of honor. Not that their womanhood is demeaning, but from the perspective of they have equal access to the inheritance. There's no second-class citizens. God gives his full inheritance to all of his saints. There's no male or female when it comes to God's love and the pouring out of his inheritance and blessing. And how does all this happen? God protects us. The Son cleanses us. The Holy Spirit seals us. What's that in response to? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace that you've been saved. This all happened because God wanted to bestow this upon you by grace, through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's not like you did enough, performed enough religiously, you merited it somehow, you lived in such a way that God said, you know what, I think you've qualified for kind of like humanity 2.0. So I'm going to give this to you as a reward for what you've done. That's not it at all. Paul says... It's not like that. So we can't boast. We can't ever say, yeah, like, I, I earned being a Christian. Like, I, I carry the Christian name, and, like, that's because God saw fit to save me out of who I am and what I was able to do. No. We don't belong in God's family. We don't deserve to have his mercy and his grace, but he saved us, Titus 3.5 says, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So Timothy Keller summarizes this whole thing this way. 
Can a Christian lose your salvation? Well, you didn't earn your salvation to begin with, so how could you ever unearn it? If you didn't earn your salvation by doing good things, how could you ever unearn it by doing bad things? You can't. It's a gift. It's been given to you by faith, by grace through faith. That's why Paul in Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, he's, just, he's creating a roll call of all the powers and principalities that might possibly be able to break you apart from God now that you're in Christ. He says, neither death nor life, angels, heavenly rulers, things that are present, things that are to come, powers, height or depth, anything else in all creation, nothing is going to be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christians can't lose their salvation. Salvation, and the reason is because salvation isn't something that you possess. It's not like your keys, and you're like, oh, I got it now, I'm a Christian. And one day you're like, whoops, I lost them. Where did I put my salvation? Or out of uh, selfish, foolish living, we can get those taken away from us. We don't possess our salvation. God possesses us. And our position in Christ is secure because of that. So salvation isn't something that we could lose. Now some people say, okay, but there's a lot of warning passages in the New Testament that warn Christians about not pursuing unrighteous ends, talk about falling away. I'll mention a few of them. There's a lot listed. I won't go into all of them. 2 Peter 3.17 says, Therefore, dear friends, speaking to Christians, you already know this, but be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by error of lawless people, people who are trying to deceive you into not following Jesus, or kind of like, Jesus, yeah, but over here is what you really need. And he says, be on your guard that you don't fall from your secure position. Second John 8, watch out that you don't lose what you've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Ephesians 5, 5, for this you can be sure, no one who's immoral or impure or greedy Anyone who's an idolater, those, that person's never going to inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Jesus even says, the lips of Jesus. Revelation 3, I know your deeds, speaking to one of the early churches. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Hebrews 6, 4, it's actually impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, tasted the word of God, miracles of the age to come, and then have committed apostasy or have fallen away from the faith or broken with faith to renew them again to repentance because they're crucifying the Son of God for themselves all over again and they're holding Jesus up for contempt. What are these verses speaking about? Yeah, there are very strong warnings in the New Testament that once you follow Jesus, you need to continue to follow Jesus. You don't turn the guarantee and security of your salvation into a license to sin. You don't, you don't try and game the system like some people do. Wait, so if I turn my life over to Jesus, all my sins get forgiven? Yes. Like all my sins, past, present, future. I'm now in Christ, I'm forgiven, I'm cleansed? Yes. And if I sin more, I'm still forgiven. I'm still like a child of God? Yes. What if I sin like a lot? Yeah, you're still a child of God. Well, why don't I just live whatever way I want? Like, I'll just sin. And Paul even says in Romans, 
he hypothetically says, why not even just sin more? Because then God's grace will abound more. But Paul also says in Romans, I don't promote sin. And it's a category error of understanding what has happened. Because the Bible does say, once you've turned your life over to Christ, you are saved, you are sanctified, you are sealed in him, you are protected in him. But now there are expectations for the new kind of life that you're supposed to live. Why? Because you are not your own. Jesus didn't save you and then say, now you just go live the life that you want to live. The Bible uses the metaphor that now you are a slave to Christ. You are a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to Christ. You don't get to do what you want. And if, as a Christian, whether in the short term or long term, you make willful decisions to stay in sin, to avoid things that you should be doing, you're, 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 maybe you're not studying the Bible anymore, you've given that up, or maybe you are studying it, but you're kind of playing loosey-goosey with the commands of Scripture, with what Jesus is calling you to do. You're not investing in the kingdom. Um, even just basic disciplines like giving and serving and, and, and just broadly speaking, trying to pursue Jesus. And again, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just talking about intentionally seeking to cultivate a relationship with God. You're not doing that. The Bible is oh, very clear you are going to experience all kinds of hardship in this life. And the Bible is very clear that in many cases, that hardship will come directly from God as a discipline. Hebrews talks about that. It says, you're a son now. But because God cares about you, he will discipline you. So if you're like, I'm a son, I'm part of the family. Yeah, great. Well, I'm just going to behave whatever way I want as part of the family. Well, in our family, that doesn't work. Because in the strong family, we have certain expectations. And if you follow those expectations, you will um, be blessed. There's all kinds of reasons why mom and dad want to bless you. See, when we obey as Christians, we're not obeying in order to secure our salvation. Salvation's already secured. We're not obeying in order, to, in order to secure God's love or forgiveness. That's already taken care of. But we are obeying in order to access and move into the kind of abundant life Jesus says was available. And if we refuse to do that, I've turned my life over to Jesus, but I want to continue to live in sexual sin here. And I'm just kind of, kind of ignore that. I'll do other stuff, but over here, Jesus isn't Lord. I'm not listening to Jesus, kind of intentionally. We might not say that because it's not the right answer, but that's how I'm operating. Or over here, I'm not going to give. Or over here, I'm not going to care. Or over here, I'm not going to serve. Scripture says, don't be deceived, Paul writes in Galatians 6. God isn't mocked. You will reap what you sow. Not as it relates to eternal salvation, but here and now. You don't become a Christian. See, a lot of people are like, well, I became a Christian, but you know what? My life is still in shambles. It's brutal. I'm still broken in my relationship with God, other people. What's going on? And you study their life and you realize, oh, you're actually not repenting of any sins in your life. You're still trying to walk as if you're not following Jesus. You're not listening to Jesus. You're not repenting. You're not confessing. So if you do that, you have to participate with God in order to move into the abundant life that God promises. And if you sow to your sinful desires, you're going to reap thorns and thistles. So there are, the New Testament warnings aren't warnings to say, you better keep being a good Christian or God's going to take away your Christianness. You were adopted, but if you really misbehave, God will unadopt you. Yeah, no one can snatch you out of his hand, but he'll toss you out of his hand. That's not what the warnings are. The warnings are, now that you are a child of God, God has a new mission and a new purpose for your life. He's given you a new identity. Now you need to move into that intentionally. And if you don't, if you try and put the brakes on, brakes on or hold God at bay, you need to understand you are in God, inviting God's discipline. The book of Hebrews says that in chapter 10. A father who loves his children will discipline them. And if you are not pursuing holiness, 
And taking that seriously, God will sometimes enact discipline, punishment, as a way of saying, no, 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 you're acting as if you aren't saved. You're acting as if you're still under the power and penalty of sin. You're not. You're born again. You're now a new creation, Jeff. I have a new purpose for you. I've put new gifts inside of you. I want you to be my conduit of grace and blessing. I want you to be formed into the, the character and person of Christ, and I want you to join my mission to the world. I have something specific that only you can do, but I need to make you into the kind of person who can do that task in a way that brings me glory. And God cares about me enough that if I say, oh, thanks, like just eternal salvation, like that's good. I'll just take this stuff after death. Like heaven's fine. I just want to live for what I want now. God's like, "Mm, nope, you're mine now. That's not actually your call anymore. And God will, I do believe, bring interference in our life as Christians until we recognize, oh, my life is not my own. I belong to Jesus. So, give, sorry, what was the question, Rita? Give us some examples of how he might discipline us. In most cases, um, I'll, I'll speak both experientially and of Paul in Romans 1. Most time what he's going to do is he's just going to let us experience the full consequence of what we're doing. He's just going to give us rope. He's going to give us line in the fishing thing. Romans 1 talks about that. He talks about, if you get a, get a hard heart long enough, God will just give people over to their desires, right? It's a Chinese curse. May your heart get everything that it wishes for. And I think a lot of times, instead of God rescuing us from situations that will bring us har- harm, and God sees us going down a path and he's whispering and he's sending good counsel into our lives and he's willing to turn us around. He's not going to do it forcibly because God, as C.S. Lewis says, is a gentleman. But God will let us experience the full weight. And then, like the prodigal son who's eating husks of corn with the pigs and he's at an all-time low, God's going to gently say, you know, this isn't who you are. Come back home. And when we come back home, there's grace. Why? Was the prodigal son no longer a son? No. He was just a son in rebellion. When the father comes home, he's like, oh, this is so good. You were my son. Kill the fatted calf. Let's throw a party. Here's a robe. Here's a ring. You've gone so deep into the uh, depths of sin that his self-identity was wrong, right? Like, I'm just going to go back and try and be a slave. I'll just be a servant. I'll just work for my former father. And his father says, no, you're my son. So I think in many cases, um, the discipline is um, really just letting us experience the full consequences and not delivering us. Just like often we do as parents, right? Kids get to a certain age where they're like, I want to live this way. I want to live my way. And you have decreasing ability to control their environment, what they do. And so a lot of what you have to do is say, okay, and you have to have your heart be broken many times you see them walk down a path trying to make something work and then you pray for them but you always through that whole thing just continue to pray and love them and support them but um, I think that would be the predominant way that would be a good question for people to research and look at through the week because the Bible speaks about uh, other instances um, where if I'm honest it speaks to some people have died or become sick because of uh, resistance to God after becoming Christians Uh, but I think that's probably experientially rare. I think a lot of the times it's God just saying, okay, I'm going to let you, you think you can do life without me, or you're trying to game the system, I'll let you go down that road 
and, um, and experience the fullness of that. So that would be my take. But again, good thing to maybe go into Scripture this week and think through that and reflect on your own experiences. Okay, so to close, I'm going to invite the worship team. You guys can come up. We cannot lose our salvation if we have genuinely turned our lives over to Jesus, but we can impede the abundant life that Jesus wants to lead us into if we're not cooperating with God. That's why when we essentially decide on a path of disobedience, yes, we're hurting God, but we're also just shooting ourselves in the foot. Essentially, we're saying, I think I have a better way of doing life with other people, with myself, with what I should be doing in the world, and I'll just leave God sidelined. And that's just insanity when you think about it. So our disobedience now as Christians draws us away from God, interferes with our relationships. It kind of keeps us in that state that Adam and Eve were, where we live with anxiety and fear. And when we obey as Christians, God begins to restore those things and bring healing. And so there's a huge call to holiness in the New Testament so that God can work through us and in us to restore us in those four dimensions to experience abundant life. Let's pray. God, as we continue this series next week, and as maybe these questions have stirred new questions, may we all be grounded in your word. Maybe seek your truth through your word, even this week, God, as we go back and maybe reflect on what I have said and measure it against scripture. May we uh, be open to your truth and open to your correction, God. We love you. Thank you that our salvation is secure in you. Help us now to press into the abundant life that you offer and not look back and not try and go our own way. In Jesus' name, amen.